How many of you have started working on your New Year's resolutions? A few people, yeah? You've got to get in early, otherwise, uh, you know, January 31 is a little bit, uh, December 31 is a bit too late to do that. How many of you, when you have done or are thinking of uh, New Year's resolutions, um, involve food or diet or exercise or health as part of those resolutions? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I do the same on a regular basis. How many of you ever explore different trends and fads and, uh, I guess, innovative ideas when it comes to foods and health and diet and exercise, yeah? What are some of the ones that are out there at the moment, really popular ones? Paleo, Paleo yeah. Yeah, 5-2, yeah. Yeah. There's a growing list. I'm going to share with you just a few. Uh, really popular ones that you may or may not have heard of, um, and they come with a caveat, don't try this at home, okay? <coughs> Tyra Banks, anybody heard of Tyra Banks? Yeah? A couple of years ago, she recommended an incredibly unique diet where you could literally eat as much as you want while losing weight. Doesn't that sound incredible? The tapeworm diet, how many of you have heard of the tapeworm diet? <clears throat> yes? Well, here's the trick to the tapeworm diet. What you do is you take these little capsules and inside they have live tapeworm eggs. And when the capsule digests in your stomach, the eggs come out and tapeworms thrive in the, uh, you know, um, enzymes within your stomach and they grow. And what's the advantage of having tapeworms in your stomach? What's the obvious advantage? They're very hungry, right? And so the rationale says you can eat as much as you want because you're not eating for one, you're eating for two, three, five hundreds. There's a mild, I guess you'd call it a mild problem. <clears throat> um, it's just that some of the side effects of tapeworms start from diarrhea and end in death. And so while it may be good for some things, um, it's not necessarily good for everything. Tapeworm diet. Um, how many of you know Simon Cowell? Yeah. Uh, they caught him on camera uh, at a recent red carpet event, and he had little cans of oxygen with him. How many of you walk around with your little oxygen cans? Anybody? An incredible health trend. Why oxygen? Well, apparently, if you breathe pure oxygen, it helps slow down the aging process. Let me just go back to Simon Cal. He's actually 124. <laughs> Little bottles of oxygen. Uh, what they tell us, what, what doctors or people who actually study these things tell us is that, sure, oxygen has certain mild benefits that last for anywhere between three to five seconds. But because of the amount of free radicals they release, they actually help increase and accelerate the aging process. So if you feel you're a bit too young and people don't take you seriously, uh, do what Simon Cowell does. He's actually only 17. One of the most interesting ones that's been in the news for quite a while is uh, one that's been promoted or it was in the news with this couple, and I'll get to someone who's written a lot on it. Um, but they talk about something called the breathitarian diet. This is Camila and Akahi. And The Sun, which is a very reputable newspaper, right? How many of you read The Sun on a regular basis? That's where all good news comes from, right? That's where Donald Trump gets his daily dose of news from. 
Okay, now the Sun ran this article on this couple, the Breatherian couple. Have you heard of Breatherians? Anybody heard of Breatherians? You haven't lived until you've experienced Breatherianism, or Ineda, as the concept or the philosophy is called. What do Breatherians do? Take a guess. They, they breathe on air, yep, which means that most of us breathe on air, right? But they don't just breathe on air. What else do they do on air? They live on air. They have this philosophy that you only need sunlight and oxygen to thrive, right? And we've been wrongly conditioned to think we need food. And food is actually what causes all of our ills and ailments. So what's a breatharian diet? This couple apparently had two children on a breatharian diet. They don't put their children on that diet yet. They said they're going to let them, you know, get to maturity at the age of maybe six or seven. Then they can choose to do breatharian diets. But what you do is you basically breathe and you subside on, on, on breathing and you make sure you get lots of sunlight. These people are solar powered. And they said they save an incredible amount of money by being, being breatharians. Isn't that a good thing? If you stop eating, you save money. One of the people that um, has really promoted breatharianism in recent years is uh, this woman. Her name is, um, well, it's, it's Ellen Grieve, but she's given herself sort of this mystic name, uh, Jasmiha, something like that. And she wrote a book called Living in the Light where she suggests that literally your body subsides on solar power and on breathing. You don't have to eat physical food. You don't even have to drink water because there is water in, in air, right? There's enough of what you need. Now, 60 Minutes were intrigued by some of her theories. Uh, incidentally, this woman is extremely rich because she writes a lot of books on what? On breathing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and she runs week-long seminars. You pay about $1,000 to listen to her talk for about a day or two on how to, to breathe. And 60 Minutes was intrigued, and they did a test with her. They brought in a medical practitioner to oversee it, and they filmed her day in, day out to see how long she would survive on her breatharian diet. And, of course, she said she was going to survive forever because that's what she's already been doing for 30 years. Two days into it, the medical practitioner had severe concerns because she looked dehydrated. They were doing renal tests and they were saying, you know, it looks like her kidneys are starting to, you know, experience kidney failure after, you know, 48 hours without any sort of liquid. And uh, Ellen, or Jasmiha, um, said the issue was they were confining her in a hotel in the city where pollution was inhibiting the proper functions of a breatharian lifestyle. And so 60 Minutes were absolutely worried that they were doing this thing wrong, and they flew her by helicopter to a mountain retreat with absolutely pure you know, oxygen and natural environment. She survived for another two days, but they have her on camera four days into it. Her pupils are dilating, her speech is slurring, and her motor functions have slowed down significantly. Right? I think she probably said it was something like about, you know, the, the, the negative energy from the cameras was interfering with her oxygen intake. Um, needless to say, there are diets, well, basically there are more diets than there are people on earth, right? How do you decide what diet to go on, what diet to get on with a New Year's resolution? Well, this morning we're not talking about diets. What we're actually talking is about churches because while we look at all these health trends and diets and some of them we think are pretty bizarre, but others look, hey, you know, there's probably some merit or some value in it. When you come to churches, there are just as many churches as there are diets. Would that be a fair comment? 
And there is just as much weirdness within Christianity as there is in a variety of different health diets. The question we're asking ourselves today is how did the Seventh-day Adventist church, of which we are a part of, fit into this fad, this smorgasbord of different Christian churches. And there are a variety of extremes when people talk about the Seventh-day Adventist church, about its purpose, its reason for existence. There are some people at one end of the spectrum who say something like this, in order to get to heaven, you have to be a Seventh-day Adventist, right? That's the only way to get to heaven. So why does the Seventh-day Adventist church exist? Well, it's the only pathway to to heaven. If you want to get to heaven, you have to become a Seventh-day Adventist. What about everybody else out there? Well, that's our job and that's our mission, to convert them to Seventh-day Adventism. So once they become Seventh-day Adventists, they too can go to heaven. Now, there's a slight problem with that because when you have that sort of approach, it assumes that Seventh-day Adventists are good and everybody else, bad and evil. But there are literally billions of Christians out there who know Jesus, who experience Jesus, who share Jesus, who love Jesus, who do good for others, who sacrifice their life, their time, their energy, their, their, their talents, their treasures. For what sake? For the sake of the gospel, to do good to humanity, to improve the lives of others around them. So that's a really extreme position that, that I think few people hold to and I think has certain dangers because it actually creates, um, it creates tension, animosity, disrespect, distrust for many people in our communities who are doing fantastic things because they know, experience, and love Jesus. Okay, so if you don't have to be a Seventh-day Adventist to go to heaven, why Seventh-day Adventism? Well, the other extreme says, you know what? It doesn't really matter. Seventh-day Adventism, yeah, it's part of the club. It's one of many Christian churches. And, you know, uh, I live in Melbourne. You live in Hawthorne. Someone lives out in the West. Someone lives in the East. It's a matter of personal preference. It doesn't really matter where you live, nor does it matter what church you go to. Now, that sounds a little bit kinder to everybody else out there, right? That doesn't sound too arrogant. It sounds more accommodating. It sounds more acceptive, more inclusive, more open, more embracing. But if we take that other extreme position where we say it doesn't really matter, they're all the same and they all do good things and it's a matter of personal preference, what question does that lead to? If it doesn't matter, then why does it exist? What value does it have? Wouldn't it be more efficient if everybody just got together, got rid of all the banners and logos and names and just did the same thing since they're on the same page anyway? So it either is the only true faith and way to get to heaven, or it doesn't matter. They're two of the extremes that I guess many people gravitate to. <clears throat> when it comes to diets and fads, how do we know which fad or which, well, I shouldn't say fad, which diet, which health lifestyle is best for us? Would the best way be to explore every single diet and fad out there? How long would you have to experiment with a particular health fad before you knew if it was really working for you? Let's be realistic. A week, two, three, a month maybe? Let's say we gave it a month or so. In about a month, you'd expect to see some results, right? And considering there are about 124,000 registered fads or diets out there, how long would it take you to get through all of them? Well, hopefully you'll find one that gives you mortality early on so you can keep experimenting with the others, right? It's going to be a long time. We don't do that. So the way to understand how to best look after our bodies is not by looking at all the fads out there, but doing what? Getting to understand and know our body with the best tools at our disposal, the best science, the best research, the best medical technology out there. When it comes to 
faith, when it comes to understanding Adventism, rather than exploring every single faith out there, we're better off starting with the Bible and saying, what does the Bible tell us? What does the Bible show us, reveal to us about God, about Jesus, about truth, about life, and then work our way to understand how, why, and if at all the Seventh-day Adventist Church has any reason or purpose for existence. We're going to explore a story in the Bible. And uh, before we, we encounter this particular character, uh, let me ask you a question. Um, when you grew up, can you remember what aspiration you had for your life? Can you remember being four, five, six, and people start to ask you, what do you want to do when you grow up? Because by six, you should already know, right? Yeah. Uh, I love some of the responses that our girls give us. Uh, I'm not sure. Yep, they're there. Um, one of them wants to be a gymnastic teacher and a scientist. And the other one wants to be, what, a piano teacher and a scientist? You know, it's the things that they, they love doing and that they enjoy. Um, now, how many of you remember, <coughs> or how many of you that have ever seen a nephew or a niece or a, a child looked and held that child and said, I wish, I really hope and long for this child to grow up to be a parking ticket inspector? Is that anybody's life's ambition? How many of you remember when you, you, know, you were finishing high school and you went into the careers web page? Do you remember the careers web pages and the careers counselors? And, and, and you, know, you flicked through alphabetically for P, 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 parker, ticket, inspector. And you try to figure out what the qualifications are, what the prerequisites are. And, and you know, before you even finish high school, you start practicing, right? How do you practice? Well, lots of walking, right? And, and you, know, you, you get one of those toy guns in the holster and you practice doing the quick draw, right? You see, it's, you know, overstayed by two minutes, quick draw, ticket, and then you run before they catch up with you, right? No? Anybody? What's wrong with parking ticket inspectors? Aren't they just the most lovable subset of our community? How many of you are really good friends with a parking ticket inspector? Are you suggesting parking ticket inspectors don't have friends? I'm going to tell you a story about an ancient parking ticket inspector type person. Now, when he was born, his parents did not want him to be a parking ticket inspector. <clears throat> in fact, about 2,000 years ago, around roughly around 10 AD when he was born, his parents looked at this newborn baby and they said, we want our child, in fact, we don't want our child to be, we think our child is a gift from God. He was born into a Jewish family, and every time a Jewish family had a baby boy, what were they hoping that that baby boy would become? They would become the savior, the Messiah, the superhero of the Jewish nation. And so most boys had names that were prophesying or forecasting that they one day would be the savior or the Messiah of the Jewish nation. So they named this child Matat Yahu, which means a gift from God. Now, Matityahu in the Greek over centuries got sort of morphed into Matathias. And by the time Matityahu was actually born, it was Matityahu in Hebrew, but the Greeks didn't call him Matityahu. The Greeks would have called him something like Matthew. Let's read about Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. In the Bible, you've got Bibles there on... Uh, your chairs. I'll use one of these just so we can be on the same page. <clears throat> Matthew, and we're going right to chapter 9. It's in the New Testament there, Matthew chapter 9, 
verse 9 to verse 13. Remember, when he was born, his parents thought he was a gift from God. And we get to know a little bit about how this gift grew up. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Matthew was walk as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew, Matityahu, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and me by disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other distributable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices, for I have come to call not those who think they are righteous or good or perfect or holy, but those who know that they are sinners, those who know that there's something wrong with them. Matthew. Oops, I think I might have broken something. Not yet. Matthew. Gift of God. But he grows up to be a tax collector, which is almost as bad as a parking ticket inspector. And how is he described by his contemporaries? When people see him on the street, what do they think of him? He is, what does it say there in in the Bible, in your translation, in the NLT that we just read? Scum. Scum. Now, it's one thing for someone to call you scum. It's another another thing for them to call your children scum. How would you feel if you were Matthew's parents? You invest in him, you pour your heart, your energy, your time in him, and he grows up to be scum. Oh, I wish my children grow up to be scum when they grow up. Scum. Why was he such scum? Well, we need to understand a little bit about his profession, his parking ticket inspection collection. What was a tax collector back in those days? What did tax collectors do? And why was he called scum? Well, we need to understand a little bit about the taxation system. Now, let me ask you something. How many of you are very familiar with your, the current Australian tax brackets? How many of you, you know, you, you, you go to bed at night and you, you read the tax tables and you wake up in the morning and read the tax tables? Well, we've got one person here. The rest of you? No? Aren't you worried that you'll get ripped off at tax time? Aren't you worried you're paying too much tax? You pay an accountant, let them do the worrying? Yeah, if you wanted to find out your tax bracket, how could you do it in a jiffy? You Google it, right? Australian tax brackets. And the first thing that comes up is a little table with (coughs) Australian tax brackets. Or you can talk to our friend here and you don't even have to Google it. He'll he'll give you a blow by blow. What's the first tax bracket? Zero. Zero. From zero to what do you pay no tax? 18,200? I'm going to take a time out, 30 seconds, somebody Google it. Let me see if, uh, if we can do this quickly. What's the first Australian tax bracket? Is it 18,200? Are we right? Anybody? 18,200. Yes, there we go. There is someone who is not paying too much tax to the government, right? But taxes worked very differently 2,000 years ago when Matityahu, this gift of God, decided to embark on the profession of being a tax collector. So back then, there was this guy in Rome called Caesar who, you know, had many titles, um, king, emperor, ruler. But if you looked at it from today's corporate world, 
At the time of Matthew, well, while he was growing up, there was Caesar Tiberius. Caesar was not so much the emperor or the king. He was essentially the owner of a very large private business, right? That's what he was. And why did he come into possession of this very large private business? In fact, it was the largest business in the world. How did he get this large private business? Well, he didn't buy it. He basically had the most thugs at his disposal to take over everybody else's property and say, it's mine and now I'm running a business. Are you with me? That was basically warfare. If you wonder why people went to war, it was basically to enlarge their business. They went on hostile takeovers. So Caesar owns basically the known world. Now Caesar wants everybody to pay their dues, to pay their membership fees. What do we call membership fees? Taxes, right? How do you experience protection and safety within my special private club? Well, you have to pay your membership fees, taxes. But there are literally tens of millions of members. And do you think Caesar wants to go around knocking on doors, collecting membership fees? No. He didn't have the tech savvy to build an app to do that for him. He wasn't great on email or newsletters or anything like that. And so what he does is he calls kings that basically him and his empire have defeated and subdued. We'll call these patrons. They're smaller kings, smaller emperors of various regions. And he says, if you want my protection and if you want to live and if you want to remain on the throne and be part of my club, I'm going to make you a franchisee. Right? Now, we look at modern business today and we think it's very clever. We learned most of it from the Romans, right? And so he says to these franchisees, okay, if you want to be a franchisee in the Roman Empire, how much tax or membership fees can you bring in? Now, let's say in an area like Judea or Israel, right, there were a couple of different kings or, or rulers who wanted to own the franchisee or the franchise of Israel. And let's say five of them who came from wealthy, noble families would come to Rome and all of them wanted to be in charge of collecting taxes in Israel, Palestine. Which one would get the job? How do you think you'd do it? How many of you have uh, been in a real estate transaction recently, looked at purchasing real estate? Anybody here? No? In the last 10 years, anybody purchase real estate? Yeah, yeah. Especially over the last few years in quite a bit of a crazy market, what's the typical approach? You go look at a house, and how many other people are there at the same time or have looked at it over the last week or two? Up to hundreds, right? And how do you establish the final selling price? How do you get to the final figure where someone actually gets to win? The, sorry? Whoever, that's right. It's basically a soft auction, even if it's not an auction. Uh, we had this happen to us recently. We put an offer on something, and I said to the agent, do you promise me that you'll take our offer to the vendor first? Because we're here, we've seen it, and you're telling me you're going to see them in half an hour. If they reject it, that's fine. Uh, but don't go with, you know, other competing offers. Don't misuse our offer to increase the price. No, we're ethical. We don't do that sort of thing. I said, ah, oh, wonderful. I found an ethical real estate agent. He leaves the office and he says, I'm on my way to the vendor. I get in my car and I go home. While I'm in the car, he gives me a call. He says, oh, you know, we, we, we had another offer that I'm taking. I said, where did that happen? Did, did someone, did the police stop you, you know, on, on the road and, and make an offer while you were, you know, being booked for a speeding infringement? Oh, well, it's a bit complicated. Anyway, 
he used our offer to bump the price up, right? And got another party to pay a lot more for it because they used our offer as the lowest offer, right? That's business. It is what it is. Anyway, so these patrons, that's what they would do. They would come to Rome, four or five very wealthy people, and they'd say, we want to buy Israel. We want to own that franchise, right? So they would all bid, and whoever bid the highest amount would go home and have the privilege of collecting taxes in that area. But again, these were really rich people. They didn't want to be collecting taxes themselves. So when they went back to Israel, they would call local members of parliament, local government officials, other less wealthy but wealthy enough men, and they would say, who wants to collect taxes in this city or in that city? And what they would do is they would sell smaller franchises in each of the major regions of their particular little kingdom. Does that make sense? So it's like a pyramid, basically a hierarchy. So someone like Herod, do you remember reading about Herod or heard of Herod from the Bible? Herod was a patron over a region, Galilee, Judea. And then he would come and he would sell off different portions of his estate for tax collecting to chief tax collectors. For those that are familiar with the Bible, can you think of a chief tax collector that might have been mentioned in the Bible? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector of Las Vegas. Did you know that? No? Well, he was a chief tax collector of Jericho, and Jericho was the Las Vegas of, of its day. Do you think it's, it's, pretty, uh, it's a pretty good place to collect taxes in Las Vegas? Do you think people bring money and spend money in Las Vegas? Oh, yeah, it's a good place. So he was a pretty lucky man. He got to collect taxes in one of the most depraved yet wealthy cities of his time. Now, he was really wealthy, and he didn't have time to go around knocking on doors. So what they would do is they would basically put an ad in the newspaper and say, who needs a job? What kind of job? Well, job advertisement title would have been, we are looking for scum. Right? Do you think that's what it said? No, we are looking for young, enthusiastic, entrepreneurial men who want to make a mark on history. That's what it would have said, right? AKA's come. And so then you have all these tax collectors who collect taxes. Now, what's wrong with that system? Is there anything wrong with that system? It just seems like a good business structure. You've got the CEO, you've got upper management, you've got middle management, and you've got slave labor. No, you've got workers. You know, most of us are at the worker bee kind of level where we, we just work for another corporation. What was the problem with tax collecting? Why were they such scum and hated so much? Well, we need to understand a little bit about the tax system back then. There was income tax. How many of you would love to pay 1% income tax? That's fantastic. You know, if you let me pay 1% income tax, I can start paying for my first dollar. Right? You can do away with a tax-free threshold for 20000 and I'll just pay 1%. That's definitely a winner. But income tax wasn't the only tax. There was the bridge tax. What's the bridge tax? Be really creative. What do you think a bridge tax could be? That's very creative. Every time you cross a bridge, you pay a tax. Right? There was the road tax. Now we have road taxes too. What do we call them? Tolls, use this road, use that road, you pay a tax. What else? There was the market tax. When you came into a market to sell produce, you had to pay to get in. There was the sales tax. What was that? When you came out of the market, how much money you had, you had to pay your sales tax. What else do we have? Property tax for buying and selling property. There was an emergency tax. What do you think an emergency tax was for? Emergencies. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, a Roman soldier comes up to you and says, there's an emergency, you've got to pay tax. And what did you have to do? You have to pay the emergency tax. Isn't that good news? 
Uh, what else was there? What do we have? Um, your grain tax, around 10% for growing grain. Uh, your wine, fruit, and olive oil tax for growing all those other sorts of things. <coughs> now, once you add all of the, these taxes together, you get to a substantial amount of taxation. In fact, most people worked just to be able to afford to live from day to day because any surplus income was always collected by <coughs> your tax collectors. Now, why did they hate tax collectors? They weren't to blame. Caesar was to blame. Well, tax collection went a little bit like this. You went to your road or to your bridge or to wherever, and the person would say, well, you need to pay your bridge tax. How much is that? Well, it's $20. Is it $20? How many of you know your tax brackets? Except for my friend over there, how many of you know your tax brackets? None of us. So if someone said to you, you've got to pay tax for crossing this road, well, you'd just what? People didn't know. People were illiterate. People were not educated. They didn't have Google. They didn't have accountants. People paid whatever tax the tax collectors charged. And how do you think tax collectors set their rates? Well, there was a very specific scientific formula to setting the tax rate. You went as high as you possibly could before you got overrun by the mob. Right? You'd usually have five, ten soldiers protecting you. And when you'd have more than 10 to 20 people start to line up and shout and protest that the tax was too high, what did you know? That you'd reached your threshold. So you'd have to lower it a little bit, right? And the people felt really good. But you were still probably way ahead of what you were collecting. Why did you do that? Is it because you were a mean, selfish person? No, not at all. The thought never crossed your mind. It's because the only reason you got this job from this guy and the only reason this guy got the job from this guy and the only reason this guy got the job from this guy is because you made promises of how much money you were going to bring in. And now you had to keep your promise, right? And you had to give this much money in 12 months. And so you wanted to collect the money as quickly as possible to make sure that you were able to fulfill your promises, right? Otherwise, it would be off with your head. Now, what happens if you manage to rate or hike taxes so much that you collect them in the first two months? Well, that's good business. Lucky you. Would you go easy on everybody else for the rest of the year? No, because what if next year you have a bad year? Right? What if you have five good years? But what if you have bad years, you know, like in 50 years? And so basically people hated tax collectors because they just skimmed and skimmed and skimmed and skimmed. Are you with me? There was no limit to really what they could get because nobody actually knew what the taxation rates were supposed to be. So here is Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector. He's collecting taxes. Jesus walks past. Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew leaves an incredibly lucrative business to follow Jesus. Why? Well, what Matthew does is he writes a book and he tells us about his experience. Now, remember, Matthew is a tax collector. He's a parking ticket inspector. He's got a few friends, but what are his friends like? What kind of society does he associate with? Where do parking ticket inspectors go to have fun? The only people you can associate with is who? 
other parking ticket inspectors because nobody else, I mean, imagine. How awkward would it be being at a dinner party with a ta- parking ticket inspector? So what do you do? <laughs> I'm a parking ticket inspector. <laughs> Everybody's asking for, you know, can you cancel my parking ticket? Can you do this? Can you do that? No. So Matthew hangs out with people like him, the lowest of the low in society, with other, what were they called? Scum. He hangs out with scum. And he writes a book. Why do you think someone like Matthew, who is scum, would write a book? Now, if you read theologians and scholars, you know what they say? They say Matthew was writing an academic piece of literature. From everything we know about Matthew, does it sound like he's an academic who's writing a PhD? Is that what it sounds like? No. So why is Matthew writing a book when books are expensive and most people never read a book in their lifetime, let alone wrote a book? Most people never picked up a book, couldn't afford a book. Why is Matthew writing a book? You see, Matthew is so impacted by what he experiences with Jesus that he writes not a book, he actually writes a letter. Who do you write letters to? Who do you normally write letters to? Well, these days, we only write letters to the government asking them to forgive us for our speeding fines. We just don't do letters anymore, we do emails, right? But back in the days when people wrote, okay, let's say, who do we write emails to generally? Okay, that's a bad example. We don't even use emails to communicate. Who do you write Facebook messages to? There we go. We're catching up with culture. To people like yourself, to people you love, to your friends, right? That's how you you write Facebook messages to. So Matthew is writing a Facebook message to his friends about his encounter with Jesus. And there's a very interesting way of how he starts his book. Now, just open there to the book of Matthew, just in chapter 1. And we're not going to read, well, we'll only read the first 14 chapters. How does that sound? No, we won't read all of it. If you look at Matthew, for a guy who wasn't an academic, he was a tax collector, who was scum, who hung out with illiterate, uneducated thugs and prostitutes and criminals and thieves... He starts off with a family tree. Now, isn't that odd? Can you imagine starting a Facebook message that goes something like this? Hey, I want to tell you about my friend Jinha. Jinha's mum was, what was your mum's name, Jinha? Son. And her mum was... I'm putting you on the spot. And her mum was, and her mum was, and her mum was. Let me tell you about Jinha's last 30 ancestors. Is that how you write a book usually or a Facebook message or an email? Isn't it odd that a guy writing to his friends, and remember his friends are the dregs of society. We just read that they're called scum by everybody else. What on earth is he thinking? Is he trying to bore his friends to tears? What we miss are a couple of clues in the kind of people that he describes in this genealogy. There are three particular ones that stand out that his friends would have read and just been shocked to see Matthew writing about this. Matthew says, I'm going to tell you about Jesus, verse 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, the descendant of David, and of Abraham. Here is Matthew, the gift of God, whose parents wanted him to be the Messiah, but he's not writing about himself. He's writing about the Messiah. 
about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. And as he lists the names of people in Jesus' family line, he makes notable mention of some people that his friends could relate to. He makes mention of a woman by the name of Tamar. Who was Tamar? She was a woman who basically sold herself, acted like a prostitute. So the Messiah had a prostitute in his family life, family line. Then in verse 5, we get to Rahab. Who was Rahab? Another prostitute. Isn't that fascinating? You go through, and a few verses later in verse 6, you have Bathsheba, who had an affair with a married man and fell pregnant. And as a result, her real husband died, her first baby died. As you read through the genealogy of Matthew, you find the list of people who were what? I mean, it starts with Abraham. Abraham was a good guy, wasn't he? Except for when he gets caught in a dark alleyway with his wife by thugs. And what does Abraham do? You can imagine, you've got Abraham right? He's with his wife. He's in a dark, cold Melbourne alleyway. He gets encountered by some thugs. And what does Abraham do? What does he do? Does he get out his sort of karate moves and get ready to defend his wife? Does he say, stand back? Does he say, honey, I've got you. What does he say? He says, oh, guys, yeah, look, I don't know. Who is she? Don't know who she is. I'm just going to mind my own business and I'll let you guys, uh, you know, get on with your evening. And he basically runs away. Did you know that's what Abraham did? How many times? Not once, but twice. What Matthew does is he lists a list of people who have severe issues, people who are not like people who in their day and age, especially women, were definitely called scum and other men who did a lot of dumb stuff. Then he goes on and says, you know, who were some of the first people that greeted the Messiah, Jesus? Who were the people that said hello to him first? Where there were some wizards from way over yonder. And what did the Jews do to wizards and to witches? Well, they usually kill them, right? So... The Messiah was born from a long list of undesirables. And the first people who greet and embrace and give gifts to the Messiah are people who make their money and their wealth from being involved in witchcraft. How does that make sense? But what is Matthew doing? Who is Matthew writing to? He's writing to his friends. And what are his friends? They are also scum like him. And what he's doing is he says, let me tell you about the Messiah. Let's read a few verses there in Matthew chapter 1 from verse 20. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. What is he considering? We've just found out that there's a 14-year-old girl who's pregnant with a child, but not from the guy she's engaged to. This is the mother of the Messiah. Another what? Someone unfaithful, scum of society. The husband, or the, the husband-to-be, Joseph, finds out. It says he was a good man. He didn't want to disgrace her. 
So this is verse 19. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. Now, when it says he didn't want to disgrace her, it means he didn't want to what? Get her stoned, right? Because if he disgraced her, that was the next, you know, stepping stone for her. Verse 20. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew has just built up an incredible array of people that the average person can relate to. And maybe people worse than even the average person. And he says the Messiah came to do this. His name is Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So is it Jesus or is it Emmanuel? Which name is it? Or is it both? What they often did in ancient times, when they wanted to emphasize something, they would repeat it using different words. Today, when we want to emphasize something, we, we you know, write it in big font, we put pretty pictures around it, we color it, we write it on the sky. We have different technologies to do that. Back then, they didn't have the technology to do that. So all they did was they repeated something. So Jesus is the same as Emmanuel. Jesus means save his people from their sins. But what does that actually mean, to be saved from sin? To be with God, to have God with us. Now, according to all of society in Matthew's time, was God hanging out with scum? No. But Matthew says Jesus came to hang out with us because he came to save us from sins. Now, the word sin, I'm not a fan of the word sin because it's not a word that's part of our vernacular anymore, right? It's not something we use on a regular basis. You don't go to work and when you make a mistake, your boss says, that was a terrible sin, right? We don't do that anymore. What does sin actually mean? How does the Bible describe sin according to, to what we read here? There's a verse in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, you can turn to it some other time, we're just going to skim through it, that says, sin, the definition of sin is the transgression or breaking the, the law, right? Which law? God's law. Would that be a fair comment? Yeah. What's God's law? Well, there are a couple of thousand, right? Now we're in trouble. But when Jesus was asked about God's law, how did he explain it? Matthew chapter 22, verse 38 to 40, a man comes up to him, a lawyer, and says, what's the most important law? He's trying to catch Jesus out to make a mistake. And what does Jesus say is the most important law? What is the law all about? Love. The first law is love. God. And love. Others. Love your neighbor. So the law of God is the law of love. And we're told who to love. God and your neighbor. That's pretty much everyone, right? So if sin is a transgression of the law, what does it mean to really sin? If the law is about loving God and others. What's the opposite of loving God and others? Of being outward focused, of being selfless. What's the opposite of that? What's the opposite of selflessness? Selfishness, right? So my preference is instead of talking about sin, 
is talking about selfishness. Jesus came to save us from selfishness. And what does it mean to be saved from selfishness? It means to have God with us. What is God's law? Love God, love others. Jesus came to restore us to what? To better relationships with? With God and with? With each other. So when we come to the Bible, this idea of salvation is not about escaping purely and solely from bad things. Sometimes people talk about being saved like this. I'm saved, I'm a Christian, because I don't do bad things anymore. I don't do this, I don't do that, I I just don't. Right? But according to Jesus, that's not what it was about. It's like people say, tell me about your relationship at home. How do you, you know, tell me about you and your wife. You know, you travel a lot, you've got two kids. What's your relationship like? And I say, our relationship is fantastic. And they say, well, why? And I say, because we don't kill each other. Does that make a good relationship? When we don't do bad things to each other. Can you imagine if we get to heaven and for all of eternity, we're walking through the streets of gold and traversing the universe. And every time we catch up, we say to each other, so tell me what you haven't done. And we pat ourselves on the back forever and we talk about all the things we don't do anymore. I haven't smoked for two and a half thousand years. I stopped lying three millennia ago. Can you imagine if heaven was all about all the things we don't do? Do you think that's why Jesus came and lived and died and rose again so that we don't? Christians are the happiest people on earth because they just don't. People ask me why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist and about the Sabbath. And I say Sabbath is incredible. On Sabbath, I don't watch TV. I don't go to sport. I don't go to the shops. I don't clean. I don't. I don't. It's an incredible day of don'ts. Would you like to experience the Sabbath? You see, we've, we've sometimes misunderstood salvation. Sure, God invites us to leave some things behind, but why? Why are there instructions in the Bible to leave some things behind? And those better things are better relationships with God and with, with each other. Why is it so bad to kill people? Because it's really hard to have a relationship with a, a dead person. Are you with me? And so Jesus gives us a really basic, dumb instruction. You know what? If you want to have friends, don't kill them. Are you with me? But is all of life about not killing your friends? I have lots of friends. I've got 7 billion people I haven't killed yet. It doesn't make them my friends. What makes a good friendship? The stuff we don't do to each other? No, it's the stuff we do, what? With and for each other other you know we talk about church and i come to the seventh adventist church in a minute but we talk about church did you know that the word church doesn't appear in the bible now we've translated the word church in the bible so you'll find it in the english versions but the word church does not appear in the original greek bibles did you know that because the word church that we have today is signifying or relating to a a building, and it comes from a sort of a Greek-German hybrid of kirche. The Greek word was kurios, which is Lord, and they used to have a sentence that sounded like kirche, which was house of the Lord. And about four, five hundred years after Jesus lived and died and the disciples all died, when Christianity kind of lost its way, they started building 
buildings. You see, their mission was to go out. And when they stopped going out, what did they start doing? Walling themselves in. And how do you wall yourself? How do you protect yourself from the outside? By building walls. Hey, wait a minute. There's someone else building walls. No, we won't go there. Enough politics. You see, so when the church lost its mission, its mission was to share salvation. What is salvation? Better relationships with God and with, with others. And when they stopped doing that, they built walls to keep themselves, to protect themselves from who? From others. Now, isn't that bizarre? And so we have the word kirche, which means house of the Lord, which now we use as church. And often today when people think about church, what do they think about? About the building. When we describe church, we describe it as a, what adults do. You know how my girls describe church? They don't talk about Melbourne church or Sydney church or Brisbane church. They talk about Micah's church. How do they talk about church? In relation to? Relationships and friends. See, the original word was not a building. The original word that you find in the Bible that we now translate as church, it's not kirche, it's actually ecclesia. And ecclesia does not mean a building. It does not mean house of the Lord. What does it mean? I'm going to give you the modern translation, the meetup. Have you heard of meetup, the app? Meetup? Yeah, I know you guys even use that at the church here. Or the, the literal translation is the gathering. That's what ecclesia means, a gathering. A gathering of who? Of people. It is not about being separated, but being together. The togetherness, the catch-up. So every time you read about church in the Bible from now on, don't read church, but read the catch-up, the meet-up, the gathering. Because salvation was about bringing people together it's restoring and healing away from selfishness and into selflessness this is what jesus taught them when they had communion it wasn't a church event what was communion what was the lord's supper it was a meal because they were doing what they were being and eating together church was not necessarily about pews the concept of church is the idea of never being alone. When Jesus talked about Christians, he made it really clear as to what a Christian was. What is a Christian? He said to his followers, this is how people will know that you are truly followers of me. How will they know? Based on the logo, based on the branding, based on the church size, based on how much money you collect, based on all these things. Is that what he was? By how you love one another, by the relationships you have. And relationships are built on doing things with and for each other, not not doing bad things to each other. Are you with me? You know, my friend here, we are really good friends because he has never hurt me and I have never hurt him. Is that, does that make us family? No. Family and church Ecclesia, the gathering, is when we do things with and for each other and for the wider community around us. Throughout history, the Christian church lost this concept because we built walls instead of going out. 
And for the last 2,000 years, God has been working through group after group of people to teach us another thing, another way, another experience of having a better relationship. You think of a child. How well does a child know how to have a relationship? Do children know how to have a relationship? When they're born, what do children do from the, the second they're born? Me, 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 right? And what do you hope to teach a child over years and decades of maturity? What do we try to teach children over and over again? Selflessness. Because then they will thrive and contribute to society and have good friendships and good marriages and good families. And that is what God has done for thousands of years with Christendom, with Christianity. How does the Seventh-day Adventist church fit into this and why does the Seventh-day Adventist church have value? Well, the Seventh-day Adventist church has the privilege of being quite close to the end of church history. Where we're definitely, we're still here today. We started relatively recently. What's the advantage of coming late to a party? You miss out on the bad stuff and you can pick and choose some of the good stuff. The Seventh-day Adventist church has not invented pretty much anything new. What has the Seventh-day Adventist church been able to do? The Seventh-day Adventist church is built and developed around a group of people who have come from where? From everywhere, from all different walks of life, from all different religious expressions and journeys. And they've come together and learned together and grown together from history, from predecessors, from others who have been there, who have done that. It's like saying, what do you think is better, a 20-year-old child or a 2-year-old child? Who's better? Who do you love more? Who's more important? Could you differentiate? Would you pick and choose? But is there a difference between a 2-year-old and a 20-year-old? What's the difference? Maturity, right? And why does a 20-year-old have maturity? Is it because they were born as a 20-year-old? Can a 20-year-old go around and say, I'm mature because, you know, I I was born yesterday and now I'm mature? No, a 20-year-old, what, has gone through phases and stages and a journey. They can't take credit for that. They can't be arrogant. What are some of the things that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has that relate to this concept of salvation? I won't go into detail. My challenge is for you to explore personally, to explore yourself, the different beliefs, teachings, practices, Everything within Seventh-day Adventism relates to how we can have a better relationship with God and a better relationship with people. And these and a whole list of other things were learned from others. Did you know that the first Seventh-day Adventist missionary who went to other countries to tell people about Jesus, because that's what Jesus told us to do, did you know the first Seventh-day Adventist missionary was a Catholic priest? Because the Catholics had an incredible zeal for mission and for evangelism, and they did it well. And so when this Catholic priest discovers some other things in the Bible about how to have better relationships with God and with others, he says, well, I want to join with the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I want to tell other people about how to have a better relationship with God and with others. How many of you know the man on the screen? Anybody? You don't have a portrait of him in your wallet, bedside? Isaac Newton. How many people think ill of Isaac Newton? What do people generally think of Isaac Newton? A? 
a physicist, a genius. He is literally one of the bedrock scientists of modern physics. An incredible man. Did he get everything right? In fact, he got a lot of things wrong. And if you typed in what did Isaac Newton get wrong, you'll find a whole list of web pages that tell you everything he got wrong. Are there still scientists who believe everything Isaac Newton said? No, why not? Because we keep learning, we keep growing, and we keep maturing. Does anybody look down on Isaac Newton because he got some things wrong? Or didn't understand some things? No, but what we say is we learned so many things from Isaac Newton and we keep moving on and growing. Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein said that the universe was fixed. It was a constant. What did we discover just a few years after Albert Einstein said that? That the universe is expanding. And yet today we still use Einstein as the benchmark of genius. Right? Do people disparage Albert Einstein and say, the guy was a loser, he's no good. Do people say, I'm better than Einstein because I understand that the universe is expanding. Or do we say he made an incredible contribution to science? How does the Seventh-day Adventist church fit in? It has been able to learn and grow in so many ways from others throughout history. And what does it have to share with the world? A framework to have better relationships with God and with each other. And on top of that, the Seventh-day Adventist Church does something that no other denomination does. It says that we are going to keep doing what? Just because the pastor says it? Should we accept it and stay there and leave there? No, we are going to keep growing, keep learning, keep moving. When we get things wrong, let's get together and say, you know what, it's time to take another step, another stepping stone. This is how I see the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I'd like to challenge and encourage you to explore it yourself and to see how this fits in with your uh, experience. It's an evolving holistic community striving for better relationships with God and with each other. Things like the Sabbath, the health message, our understanding on hell, on life and death and prophecies, all of those things that we've learned from. Did we come up with them? You know, we didn't come up with anything. We learned them from other people. They help us to have better relationships with God and with each other as we keep growing, keep evolving, keep learning, keep moving on. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. His challenge, his invitation for us is to let him help us experience that. How can we have, how can we experience better relationship with God? How can we have better relationship to others? Is there anybody in our life where we say, you know, we could take one step towards being closer, doing more with and for each other in our families, in our marriage relationships, with our children, in our church community, in our workplace. That is genuine Christianity. That is why Jesus came to live, to die, and rose again. That is why Jesus lives for us. And that's what heaven will be about. Not a group of people who are so glad they don't. But a group of people who are constantly living with and for each other.